My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is, is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The Alien. The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The Underground. The Decision. The Spoke. The Departure. The Second Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Mutation. The Separation. The Deception. The Suspicious. The Unexpected. Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Beginning. The message. So, what book did we read this time? This week on Animorphology, The Message. Which one's this one? This is the one with the dolphins. Right. The dolphins. The first one with the dolphins. Gray's favorite. There's more with dolphins? <laughs> Spoiler alert. Sorry. Yeah, they, they sometimes turn into animals multiple times. Well, yes, but I'm <laughs> delighted to hear that. Yeah, this was a good one. I was very excited to see the dolphins. I'm so glad. Yeah, better in the coast than in the Midwest. Absolutely. So Jenny, do you want to give us a quick summary of the book? Okay. In this one, Cassie has been having a weird dream of something calling her from beneath the water, and it turns out Tobias has been having the same dream. So they go investigate, they get some dolphin morphs, and go swimming to try to find something. They don't find anything because they end up tangling with some sharks. The sharks are attacking a whale, they save the whale, but Marco gets almost bitten in half by a shark, and he manages to morph back, and his body is fine because it's recreated from DNA, and the whale helps Marco survive in the water, and tells them, because it turns out whales are psychic, about this weird spaceship thing under the water and so now they have the information from the whale Cassie knows how to find this thing but she's kind of the one who has to make the call about let's go down and find it and she's really worried about that she doesn't want the responsibility for more people getting hurt like Marco just did and so finally she decides they're going to go for it they go under the water as dolphins again and find an Andalite in part of an Andalite spaceship he was part of the battle at the beginning of the series and he is actually Elfangor's younger brother. So they escape with him, but Visitor 3 has also been having these dreams because he's an Andalite, and the Yerks come after them. They end up battling taxons in the water. Visitor 3 morphs this really scary creature, and they're saved because the whales attack him for them. And they bring Axe back to shore, and now, uh, now they have an alien in their group. Once again, I think they have raised the stakes, which I was not expecting because the stakes already seemed very Mm -hmm. high, and yet they're even higher. The pacing was really good again, and I enjoyed still the development of the relationship between these people, and I am super excited about this Andalite. Yeah, Axe! Real glad he's here. So it's interesting that you said that because in reading this book, I was a little underwhelmed for the first time of this reread, Mm -hmm. and my thought was the stakes about what the Yerks are going to do mm-hmm. and the idea of Axe as a character are already so baked into what I expect from the books mm. that it, what, for whatever reason, reading through it again, it wasn't quite as exciting. And there were other things that we'll probably talk about that I thought were a little, a little weaker. I had the same experience, actually. So this was the first book I ever read of the Animorphs, and I remember enjoying it. It's always like disorienting watching the first episode of a TV series or reading the first book that you've read of a series. You don't really have context for the characters, and you don't really know them. And so thinking back on the series, I kind of assumed that's why I didn't latch on as hard after this book, but I think maybe this book just wasn't as compelling to me as the sixth book, which is the second one I read, Hmm. and like fell really hard for the series from that book. And I think... Yeah, I had the same experience as Ted. This was... But there were, this, there were still so many moments. I think we've talked about this before. So many moments where I'm like, oh, this is something that I remember yeah. really, really clearly. And there were a lot of those with X. There were a bunch with... Yep, the dolphin um, stuff I remembered pretty well. Right, the dolphins. I had forgotten about the whale. <laughs> 
How could you forget about the whale? Well, I remember I had also the whale kind of from a different instance, but yeah. I had forgotten that it was in this book. Should we start by talking about Axe? Sure. Yeah. My first reaction to Axe was, Axe is Captain Planet. <laughs> really? Because when he turns into a person, he oh, takes... the combination of yeah. all their powers. He takes a bit from each of them. He's Captain Planet. Yeah. yeah. Our powers combined. It's really amazing. Also, I have so many questions about how this works. So, first thing... Cassie's really concerned about dolphin consciousness mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. what it's like morphing an intelligent animal, which is something we should probably talk about when we talk more about Cassie. But, like, yeah. I don't think that she really worries about it at the end when Axe is, like, becoming a new person that he invents by combining DNA. But they gave their consent to have their DNA taken, and the dolphins weren't really able to do that. I think that might be the difference for her. Right. But I'm just saying, human, if humans are even more intelligent, yeah. it seems like there's even more of a risk of something weird happening there. She might have been reassured by not having felt a mind in the dolphin. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. So maybe that's enough to kind of disprove the concern there. But they don't ask the follow-up questions like, can we do this? How do you, (laughs) can you combine DNA from different animals? Like, what's the, what's going to happen here? As usual, I have more more questions about morphing than, than they have. (laughs) Okay, it's great. You can now combine. No, they're all the same species. So if you touch four different dolphins. (gasps) Wait, could you combine it across species? Or is it like how the way you define species is that they couldn't reproduce, so you also couldn't combine their DNA? Maybe. Or maybe you could become a centaur. I mean, he already is a centaur. He is, yeah. Also, I think there's... You know, Marco doesn't see the immediate business opportunity here that I do, which is that there's a, like, what will my baby look like business that Axe could go into. Because you seem to be able to not only, like, choose your sex, but combine, like, a realistic, when when your child is your age, right, this is kind of what what the person will look like. So, yeah, so maybe they should just forget about the whole Yerk thing and just set Axe up as a business person. I'm just expecting Marco to suggest this at some point. (laughs) Maybe if, like, the internet had been more prominent and that was already a thing. That does seem like something that Marco's going to say at some point. (laughs) I remembered the bit where he's like, I have chosen to be male because I am male. And this time reading it, I was like, so gender is, like, this thing that transcends species? Like, Andalites, I guess, also have male and female and their equivalent? And... It felt like a failure of imagination on the part of the authors. Like, they're just staying within the gender comfort zone. And, yep. like, it definitely could have been that, like, Axe doesn't have a gender. Or yep. Axe has, like, a third gender that doesn't exist for us. Right. Or they have two genders, but they don't correspond. Like, there's so much interesting stuff that, like, isn't even touched on. Yeah, and if he's combining the DNA from two women and two men, you would think he would be intersex or... Well, you think, like, a woman and a man have a baby, and, like, usually, sure, but it ends up one. Right, but at least the way that I read it was he, he's like, I have the option to be either, but I will choose it because that is what I am comfortable with. Yeah, uh, that's what he already is, and he somehow is able to recognize that in humans, Mm -hmm. and be like, oh, this is the same as what I am. Right. It's a good point, because it's hard to imagine some of the aliens having real gender differentiation. The taxons, I don't I'm sure they having could. secondary sex yeah. characteristics, for example. <laughs> um, but I wouldn't expect them to be very intuitive to us, and it seems right. like Andalite and human gender is very comparable. Hmm. Right. And yet, yeah, more alien society stuff comes up as we go through the books, so it'll be interesting to yeah. see if they ever get a little more creative. It was nice to learn more about the Andalite worlds. And not just how they travel, but the way that they interact with their environment. Nature, yeah. Very nature-focused. I love the dome ship. 
So finally, after books of avoiding what the inside of a spaceship looks like, we finally (laughs) get it. And it's so cool. I just love everything about it. Like the broccoli and asparagus trees, the weird water crystals, the funny colored grass. Like everything's a little off, but you can imagine it. Mm -hmm. The way the ship is shaped like a mushroom or an umbrella, neither of which Axe understands at all. Right. Yeah, that was actually a super helpful way to (laughs) describe what the dome ship looks like. I love that. And then one thing that made a huge impression on me was the word that he had for the landscape, yeah. right? There's a word for the way the lake curves forward into the grass framed by Darashol trees, which uh-huh, are the like uh-huh. asparagus trees. For whatever reason, the idea that there were like words for things that I wouldn't even think of was really mind-blowing to me <laughs> as a 10-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. That was the one moment in this book, the rereading it, like I was like, oh man, I remember this so clearly. And like thinking about the implications of what it meant. It reminds me of the linguistics thing. I think it was sometime in the middle of the 20th century where some prominent linguist was like, it turns out Eskimos have like 500 words for snow. And it that's not really true. Like we also have a lot of words for different types of snow. It's not mm-hmm. that stark a difference. But it was this trend of thinking in linguistics where, yeah, if you have words for things, it means you can think of them in ways that people who don't have words for them can't think about them. Right. Which is it's certainly, if you think about something, you're more likely to come up with a word for it. But mm. right. yeah, it felt like it was connecting to that ideology. Um, yeah, and there's like a lot more technology that we get introduced to. So the whole way the thing gets started is Axe is reaching out, mm-hmm. right? He's communicating psychically, and it turns out Andalites can hear it, so Visser 3 hears it. And then Tobias is trapped, so he can hear it. And then Cassie is sort of is like a super morpher, so maybe that's <laughs> why she can hear it, right? So it's using mirror wave technology, <laughs> is what Axe calls it. And so what I was wondering is, is this like at all similar to the thing that Elfangor does in the first book where he like is able to transmit something to Tobias, like a lot of information all at once. Because Cassie had, like Cassie and Tobias had pictures in their head when they were dreaming. Right. It wasn't just the voice. So I had sort of remembered the Elfanger thing never happening again, but this is like plausibly the same thing. I feel like this keeps coming up where like this thing happened in the first book and never happened again. And then three books later we're like, oh, it kind of happened again. I did think it was interesting the the mirror wave technology is another example of how the Andalites, their technology is this weird mix of, they're calling it technology, but it seems very bio-oriented. Mm-hmm. And that this is another example of that where you're saying it's technology, but technology implies to me a certain physicality that transmitting something into another person's dreams does mm-hmm. not. And I thought that was just really interesting. Cassie being able to get this, <laughs> I'm skeptical. Well, I feel like the technology thing, I've never really studied history of science, but I have the impression that in that kind of study, technology is ideas, really, more than anything. Like, ideas build upon each other. So maybe we wouldn't use colloquially the word technology for stuff that, like, is really just techniques or, like, learning, but... Feel like it can be encompassed in the same thing. That's a good point. But I was curious about like, so he's trying to reach Andalites. Is this mirror wave technology connected to the morphing ability? Because not every Andalite, in theory, could morph because don't they also have to acquire it from the box? Well, so... when you use ThoughtSpeak, you can choose your target, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. and it's not like it's it's either one person or everyone. You can talk to multiple people. So maybe there's like a signature of like he's trying to target, mm-hmm. right? Morph-capable. Morph-capable people. Because any Andalite warrior on the planet certainly would be morph-capable. Right. Does he know that Visser 3 is on the planet? He has that whole don't talk about him, but does he? Yeah, that's a good question, because he must have, I mean, I think probably. He he might not have thought of it. Right. Or he might just, I mean, he's pretty desperate if 
if he doesn't get found, he's going to die eventually. If he reaches out, yeah, Visser 3 might find him, or the Andalites might find him, so it might just be worth the risk for him. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like he didn't think it through. But then again, he's also young. He's like he's a kind of a, he's kind of a bad student like them, right? <laughs> I loved that. I really lo- yeah. yeah. I wasn't paying attention. He also makes bad decisions. This yep. whole, I was not supposed to be in charge of a ship, then I was, and then I, it didn't go well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he was supposed to be on the dome. Like, they put him there because he wasn't supposed to be fighting. Like, this is your daycare. Go sit and talk about I liked those. I remember, I had never seen Star Trek when I read these books the first time, but I remember later, like, watching Star Trek and realizing, like, oh, Vulcans can keep track of time like this. That's where she got it. <laughs> Oh, I never made that connection. I was just yeah. assuming that they were like, okay, so now we have a red-tailed hawk wearing a watch. we got to fix this. Okay, give the alien time-tracking yep. oh, abilities. Oh, it's super useful. Yeah. Like, really good call. That's very handy. Although it makes sense that a species that has... Well, I guess they haven't evolved this capability because no. it's technology. Yeah. Never mind. I was going to say, if you had evolved the, the ability to do this, then also evolving the ability to track the time before you get forever changed into a red tail hawk seems like a good plan. But. Although it could have gone the other way around, like they were more comfortable developing this ability with major side effects mm-hmm. when they knew they could keep track of time. But yeah, there are a few, like, I feel like the smiling with his eyes is like a very Vulcan thing. Mm-hmm. Like they don't they don't smile with their mouths and Axe doesn't have a mouth. Interesting. Um, yeah, that's and, another thing that I really remember about Andalites, is the, the eye yep, smiling thing. smiling with their eyes. I don't think we had the word smize at that point. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, there's some other good... So we get a little bit more about Andalite society, right? So there's the uh, Prince Jake moment. I love yes. the Prince Jake thing. Right. He's don't part of... I Prince. mean, maybe it's more Andalite military society. It's it's a little unclear how much of their society is based on this militaristic way. But at mm-hmm. least Axe is... He's like a young cadet warrior, Right, right, so mm-hmm. this he's looking is, for the looking for the head of the. Yeah, he needs group. to follow somebody's orders. I also enjoy the the family relationships. Mm-hmm. So Elfengor is his prince, but also his brother. Mm-hmm. But he refers to everyone else as cousins, mm-hmm. and it wasn't oh. clear to me whether that was actually a familial relationship or if there was a word for the people in your military group or all of the people who are Andalites right. are also your. Or cousins. maybe it's very integrated, so it's almost <laughs> like your military group is your family. Right. Right. It did yeah. not occur to me they might be actual cousins. I mean, yeah. Right. Well, yeah, probably I also not. think I also think probably not, but it's like that's how you, they think about it. Yeah, I liked that. And you get a little bit more it, with Elfangor, it's like, oh, well, how did he die? Was he a, was he really like was he a warrior? Was he mm-hmm. brave enough? And then like he gave you the morphing ability. He shouldn't have done that. That's like, mm-hmm. you know, and he he sort of says like well, there are these unspoken secrets I can't tell you about still. You know, I, I can't really explain mirror wave technology to you, right? He still has this this reluctance to, to talk about it. Very reasonably. I mean, he's been abandoned, not abandoned. He doesn't but know these people. Lost on this planet. They've rescued him. That's great. But they're a completely different species. He's young. He doesn't know what he's doing. And it makes sense that he would be a little reluctant to give away these incredibly important secrets of, of their technology. Presumably, Visser 3 already knows all of that. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the enemy already has it, but it's good to be cautious, I guess. I feel like he wouldn't have really trusted them as completely and like fallen in with them the way he did if it hadn't been that his brother gave them this technology and he clearly admires his brother so much. Right, mm-hmm. right. But even that, he doesn't turn on a dime. He's still like, yeah. it takes him a little while to start telling mm-hmm. them things. It's not like they stop and ask him a bunch of questions when they're all about to drown at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> I mean, it seems like 
is it Rachel or Marco who's like, wait, wait, you're holding out on us? That's not cool. And then the Yerks show up. So Yeah, exactly. I also love the way everyone interacts with Axe to begin with. So like Marco immediately is like, I'm not going to say that name, you're Axe. <laughs> yeah, same yeah, way little, he coins yeah. the animorphs. He's like, this is what we're calling you. And again, it just catches on right away. And Rachel is like, oh, he's cute. It's <laughs> so funny. Very funny. Except he has a Voldemort nose, so... <laughs> Well, they don't know that. I know. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time either. Exactly. And the when he does morph into a human, the minutes where he's trying to figure out what it is to be in a human body were yes. very funny. So good. I'm so glad you enjoyed those. It's not over. Excellent. <laughs> it makes sense. I mean, you go from having four legs to having two. Of course, you'd fall over, but you've I, never had a mouth. You get to say sounds. Right. Yeah. He picks up language very quickly for a <laughs> being that has never had a mouth before. Right. But that's probably like there's some those well, human instincts human that kick in. <laughs> <laughs> Humans are just born knowing how to speak. Exactly. The team picks up, you know, echolocation very quickly. For mm, example. Yeah. So yeah. I guess it makes sense that once you're morphed into that form. And so Axel is also the one who raises the stakes, right? Yeah. So what was your takeaway from that? I have some questions. So the way he describes your takeovers is they take over the hosts, whatever species on the planet is going to be the hosts, and then they destroy everything else except anything that's going to be food for the hosts. Right. (laughs) Which kind of covers a lot. Actually, yeah, you take anything out of our ecosystem, as we know. Yeah. Things kind of collapse. So it's good to have those high stakes. They're going to destroy the world. It's not just that they're taking over humans, which would be bad enough, but they will leave this a barren wasteland. Right. I just the mechanics of it. So I'm interested to see if there's more information about the rest of the known galaxy. So the taxons have been taken over happily. The Horpagir have been taken over unhappily. Humans are in the process. Mm-hmm. And the Andalites have not been taken over at all. So h- how many other species are out there that are part of this fight? And yeah. are they choosing sides? Or is it pretty much the Yerk have this incredible military ability, not military ability, but they've taken over just about everything. Conquest and ability. Yeah. Pockets of resistance. I'm just interested yeah, in that's, how this works. That kind of raised the stakes for me more than the they will wipe the planet of animals kind of thing or of nature because it did paint a different picture of it's not just that these aliens have showed up to conquer it's like oh they've already conquered most of the known galaxy like that is a different thing Mm. I actually didn't feel like it raised the stakes a lot for me the thing where and they'll wipe the planet of life well they're already taking over all the humans game's kind of over anyway like do we are we really that concerned with what they'll do with the planet after that apparently Cassie is I am also. <laughs> I'm with Kathy on this one. Like that, I did actually think that was her kind of one of her moments of her elucidation moment. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, it was. It was definitely her moment. And it it makes sense that Cassie, who has this incredible connection to kind of nature and, and animals, is the one who's has that. Oh yeah, definitely. Panic. But I'm, I'm with her on that. Listen, humans are already wiping each other out. <laughs> no, that's, that's fine. True. But could you leave the rest of the ecosystem? <laughs> it's better off without. Right. I kind of just felt like I mean, the that, thing where they're going to take over all the humans is so bad. It's like, we'll burn you alive, and then we'll cut off your head. It's like the second part isn't even like... Right. I think, I don't know that the books ever go here, but there are plenty of people who take a, a dim view of humanity and mm. say, like, well, if humans, like, if we all just, like, wipe ourselves out, wouldn't Earth be better off? You know, like, let nature do its thing, you know, That's keep... Right. I'm not sure the books ever go there, but it is kind of like a different... You know, okay, well, the humans are gone, they're kind of terrible, but like the Yerks are also going to destroy mm-hmm. everything else mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know, Earth will not exist in a meaningful way. It certainly makes sense that that would raise the stakes for Cassie because she yeah. cares so much about animals. 
And the way that she has that realization is also really interesting. It raises the stakes for her personally so much, not just as a what she's fighting for, but how she's emotionally invested in the fight. She talks about how, I've lived my entire life without feeling hatred. It's mm. a sickening feeling. It burns and burns, and sometimes you think it's a fire that will never go out. That's such an interesting way for her to have that realization mm. that you know, Rachel's thing is that she just wants to fight it. And she seems like she's got a lot of anger about you know, her friend, and they are all experiencing very different emotions. And for Cassie to have this realization and to have it turn into hatred for these other mm-hmm. creatures, it was just a really interesting emotional touch point. Right. So we were talking a little bit earlier about how we hadn't seen that much of Cassie mm-hmm. so far in the series. Like She hadn't had really significant interactions with anyone in the first three books. So we got to see more of her this time. What did you think? I mean, you still don't see a lot of Cassie. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's too bad. She's still very much the chick, like we talked about in the first few episodes, that her role is that she's the heart of the group and the one who's good at morphing, but there isn't a lot of Cassie of what she, what are her likes, what are her dislikes, you know, who is she as a person. You get a little more of that, I think, with Rachel and Mm -hmm. with Tobias. I guess Jake a little less, but... That's because there was a lot of other things going on, whereas I thought we got a lot of Rachel's personality, kind of who she is. And Mm -hmm. Cassie seems a little more passive, that she's describing what's happening and there isn't a lot of how she's feeling about it. Right. Yeah, I love Cassie. There are a couple of, like, really good Cassie things in this book. So my favorite thing is that she's aware that everyone thinks she's the best morpher, but she's really (laughs) humble. She's like, we can all morph fine. I I don't know why everyone's like that. It's true. Um, And in her role as the heart, you can see she's doing a really good job of supporting the other people in the group. And she's also kind of aware of what she's doing. Mm -hmm. So she's telling, complimenting Marco on his hair. She knows Tobias is left out, but maybe she doesn't think she has a great relationship with him yet. So she's like, Jake, you have to check in with Tobias, you know, Mm -hmm. like make sure he doesn't feel left out of this upcoming mission. And so that's all great. But it, it isn't necessarily her personality or like, I also felt like there are a lot of questions I have about how she used to relate to the world. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what you guys are looking for in terms of personality. Like, her personality is that she's kind of passive and looks after mm-hmm. other people before herself. I thought it was really interesting that actually her blind spot in that seems to be Rachel. Like, she has significant interactions with Jake, certainly, with Marco, even with Tobias. She doesn't have any scenes alone with Rachel, and she has some line about how, like, Rachel's not afraid of anything. And I was like, wow, she can't see that the bravado isn't totally yeah. real. Her take on it is that Rachel likes it, right? Yeah. Like, that's the that was her big thing. You know, Rachel has this Amazon warrior inside of her that's been unlocked. And now yeah. she's putting quotes from The Art of War <laughs> on her corkboard. Which, it's not untrue, but it really misses the nuance there. And she's so good at nuance with other people. And it's weird that supposedly she and Rachel have been best friends forever, but you really don't see that yeah. much of it. And we talked about that before. Like, I, I don't know what her friendship with Rachel was like before they were animals, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of the missing the missing piece. Yeah, it's a good point, because that also means that this book does not pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> right? Which Because, yeah, they don't really talk to each other. They don't have any conversations that are just the two of them. There are some places where they interact, but the one that stands out most to me is Rachel catching Cassie's eye and being like, he's cute. 
about the Andalites. So oh, you're so right. That's like their one one-on-one interaction. It's about a guy. Yeah. Who is of course male because Andalites have that. Well, right. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's another point where Rachel's teasing Marco about something and she winks at Cassie, which is mm. you know something that I think happens a couple of times. But I'm sure they didn't bond about boys because Cassie doesn't like talking about boys. Right. So right, and they didn't bond about clothes. Cassie nope. has this sort of snarky comment about how Rachel has to go to a fancy dinner, which means new everything. <laughs> yeah, they also didn't bond about, like, animals, because Rachel's not that into animals. Like, were they just hang out at school, have someone to talk to friends? Which, at that age, seems less Seems a little, likely. yeah, yeah a little old for that. I feel like this is the age, and you're seeing this in the animorphs as they're interacting with one another. That's the sort of age where you start forming these incredibly tight friendships that seem overwhelmingly important mm-hmm. right I mean that sort of late elementary school middle school period is where you go from being like we have play dates with yeah, anyone yeah. in the class who wants to come to being like this is my best friend and we have bracelets and we have <laughs> done you know we spend right. all of our time together and it's just it's interesting that none of them seem to have that well one thing I was wondering about and I think we should keep an eye on this as we go through the series is that We haven't seen much of Rachel and Cassie interacting with each other. We've seen a lot of Rachel and Cassie interacting with most of the other, Mm -hmm. most of the guys. Have we seen much of the guys having significant interactions with each other? Like, is it just that Rachel and Cassie, like, they did a bad job of creating that best friend pair and they're not going to have much? Or is it that cross-gender interactions are more interesting to these Mm -hmm. authors? Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I think maybe there's been Tobias Jake... But that's the only... Yeah, Tobias and Jake... You get a little bit of Jake, Marco, and they play video games, which is also a pretty generic type thing. But they don't spend time talking to each other about what they're going through. Right. But they do spend time together. It makes sense to me that Jake and and Marco, as 12 or 13-year-old boys, aren't spending a lot of time being introspective together. (laughs) But they are spending... The other people will leave, and the two of them will stay behind and talk about, Mm -hmm. okay, are we going to do homework? Are we going to play video games? Are we going to go bug Rachel at her gymnastics thing? You're right. There is a sort of sense that I have of of how their friendship works. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it is, and this is very gendered of me, but I sort of expect more of female friendships. Yeah. Right? That especially at this age, I expect there to be real development of of the relationship but also as the two individuals as individuals and as part of this friendship group mm-hmm. and I expect less from 12 year old boys and that is terrible of me and toxic masculinity at work <laughs> and I feel bad about it you can take all of this out but that's how well, you but no I mean, that's a fair that's a cultural thing that exists and exists in you as well I think you're right Jenny that Cassie's personality is really present in this book but there is there's something that's missing. So another mm-hmm. thing is like her relationship with her parents is like by all accounts a pretty positive one, but mm-hmm. they don't really interact in a meaningful emotional way in this book mm-hmm. in the same way that you get. I guess you don't get a lot of Jake's parents, but he yeah. has the relationship with his brother. Mm-hmm. But you do get a lot more of Rachel's family and then Tobias's lack of a relationship with mm-hmm. his guardians. I guess you get the impression that Cassie's family is supportive, but you don't see them, um, you don't get a sense of what it's like living with her parents or what their personalities are. You actually get more of Marco's family in this yeah. book. Yeah, yeah. Right, there's a lot of how he interacts with, how he feels about his father, but also how he is becoming a caretaker for his father. I mean, the only interaction with Cassie's parents is her dad surprising her as she's morphing from being a squirrel. Right. Which is a very brief, yeah, very funny, but very brief scene. I did feel like they seem to create an opportunity for like vulnerability and like deepening of relationships in these books. So like we do get to see like Marco, we get to see a glimpse of some of this tough stuff and he ends up being really honest and vulnerable with Cassie. 
in a way that he probably couldn't be with Jake. It's really interesting and certainly not something I observed the first time around. I wonder, this is sort of a crazy thing to speculate about, but maybe it's because it's written by a husband and wife pair, right? Mm -hmm. If they're modeling a lot of the conversation on them talking. Also, maybe they don't have a lot of time, like other friends. I don't know what their (laughs) life is like, but if they're churning out these books... Yeah, I know, I, that's wild speculation, but I like it. Right. Um, I would like to talk about Marco's vulnerability mm-hmm. because there are a few moments in this that he is surprisingly vulnerable mm-hmm. um, and open about it in a way that I think he hasn't been so much in previous books. So, for example, how emotionally invested he was in the Angelite who died in Prince Alfrancor, that that mm-hmm. was a moment for him that he wants to avenge that death. Right. And therefore he is all in to this crazy plan because there's a chance that he can kind of help make up for that death. Does he say that during the conversation with everyone, or is that just to Cassie? I can't remember. That is an everyone conversation. Yeah, he's like, I know you're expecting me yeah. to, you know, say no, but for an Andalite, I'll do it. Yeah, he actually, like, his voice chokes up. If there's an Andalite who needs anything, I'm there, he says. Then he's, again, vulnerable with Cassie alone when she comes to him to talk about, you know, making this decision, and he's very open with her. And also surprisingly insightful in a way that I haven't seen him be in the first few books. He's talking about how bad things happen. It was my choice to do this. It's been very dangerous and you have to make a decision because you're the one who has to who who's in this particular position. And he talks about he's he's scared and he sees these visions of the Andalite being murdered every day and the here pool but we're still alive. And I think that was really interesting and and well-drawn, especially when he also has these moments where like he can't swim and he gets Mm. injured and has to be taken care of. I mean, Mark was incredibly vulnerable in this book. Right. I thought that was so interesting. Right. I feel like part of it is the influence of who is the point of view character. I think Cassie, not just in her one-on-one conversations, like she is there able to create this space where he can be vulnerable, but also, when we were in Rachel's head, we kind of needed Marco to be the antagonist a little bit to give Rachel something to push against. Like you mentioned, Ted, she needed something to get up in arms about, and so he ended up saying jerky things. And having Cassie, the chick, as the narrator is, there were quotes there, um, <laughs> does give Marco a space to be vulnerable in the book as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And I don't remember, were there as many terrible sexist Marco things in this book? He was a little girl crazy. Like, oh, he said the thing about, like, I have weird dreams about Baywatch. Did they change that in the new version? Ooh, oh, yeah. question. <laughs> Quick sidebar into all of the 90s things that got changed. Um, I will check that. I will. He also has the thing about how he doesn't want to be a hawk forever because he wants to get babes. He's going to get mm. a red. Right. Being a hawk is fine, but I want something red with lots of horsepower or something like that. That's when yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. oh, he's kind of girl crazy. At the very least, Cassie doesn't react to it in the same way that Rachel does, which is kind of what you were saying. Like, yeah, she doesn't need that thing to push against. Um, they did change the Baywatch. What did they change it to? I've had weird dreams about that woman who lifeguards at the beach. What? Okay, do kids really not, not know what Baywatch is? Also, that's not a lot better, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, I think it's weirder. Well, I don't think Great. they changed it because they thought it was bad. I think they changed it because oh, yeah, kids wouldn't recognize it. The Baywatch it's like, I have never seen Baywatch. I know what Baywatch is. 
But I guess I have been al- alive longer than yeah. kids would be reading this in well, 2011. Yeah, I think I really liked the insight into why Marco is the way he is. It's both his personality is to kind of like crack jokes, but it's it sort of implies that what makes him really good at logistics is this like realism that comes from, wow, I my mom died and my, my mm. dad fell apart and now things are really, really bad. And like right. that could happen. And there was no like reason that it happened. Um, mm-hmm. And so we need to be more prepared. And that maybe the yeah. other people in the group just at this point in their life don't have that perspective. They have like and some so, blind optimism and he's not. Right. Yeah. And so it's just really interesting that that comes not just from his personality, but from something that happened to him. Mm-hmm. I will say that this, and this is completely unrelated and cut it out, but um, one thing that I find problematic in a lot of children's literature and, and adult literature too is that it's almost always men who get that backstory. Interesting. Cassie doesn't have... I didn't know that was a trope. You know, Cassie doesn't have that kind of emotional backstory, and it there's no reason that... It, like, it's good that Marco does get that backstory, and that's great, but in general, it seems to me that in a lot of literature, the female characters are just meant to be there and to be important and, and to show up and fight and do their thing, but they don't get a backstory in the same way. And that's not always true, but I think it's often true, and I've seen it in quite a bit of things I've been reading recently and it's been annoying. I think no I think we should leave this in because I want to talk about how Cassie's race plays into her backstory because that comes yeah. up several times in the book and I found it very very disappointing reading through it this time Did so it come up in the book well great no and <laughs> why not there is I have a note to myself that just says in caps how is race not part of this conversation it was fascinating to me the ways in which it was completely ignored Mm-hmm. in places where race was clearly an interesting part of Cassie's story. For example, her family has owned a farm since the Civil War. Whoa. What? 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 Yeah. Were they, first of all, where is this taking place? Because we think California, right? You said yeah. that last right. time. Okay, so. That was like gold rush. Yes. Yeah. But how? So. How did they get to keep it for this many years? I mean, there's just a lot of like racial background in yeah. her family that I'm and very clearly her grandmother about. or her great grandmother's really into the background of their right. family, right. so there's material. Her great grandmother would have been living through the 20s when like oh. race relations were rapidly deteriorating in whatever city they're close to, right? So that the stories that Jake was hearing at Thanksgiving would have been super interesting, and I think to your point, like this idea of like a farm, if it is California, it's actually a really unique backstory. This isn't like a roll of thunder, hear my cry family. This is a family that maybe like came to California in the gold rush, like you were saying, and then maybe they have owned land that long. But if so, they were one of, you know, a few thousand black people in California. And that story is is interesting. And Do you like, think they realized they were giving her an, an improbable backstory or like an unusual backstory that like had interesting potential? Or were they just like, I don't know, her family's been on this farm for a long time. Like, did they not think I think they just borrowed it? the like, it's a farm family trope and didn't think didn't think, think about, about it that much connection. yeah i mean it's just really interesting there's also there's also some stuff in here about swimming that i was like is this going to be racist and then it wasn't and that was actually almost weirder because it means <laughs> that they were ignoring her race in a way that made her feel to me feel much more like a token mm. we mm-hmm. needed to have the two white people the bird the kid with the olive skin and the kid with the black skin Right. And like now we have checked all of those boxes. I love right. never and, bird box, but yeah. <laughs> and we were talking about like it's maybe rare for or more rare for a black girl to be the chick in a group. But you also get like the first time she's ever 
experienced hatred moment. It's like you don't, oh, wow, she, yeah. she's, they don't talk at all about what the experience of living as a black girl would be like. Mm-hmm. And so like, I don't know, she's had like experiences that have been generally positive. Yeah. She's never had a reason to hate anyone before. Right, and that's certainly true for many people of color in this country have had generally positive experiences, but also the systematic racism that they face every day, whether or not it is they might not know it's there right, but it's or like understand it yet. Part of their young. experience and to have that be so completely ignored was very I thought it was very weird and almost worse. So I was thinking last time we were talking a little bit about Tobias as someone that a lot of trans people identified with and how sometimes explicit representation is less identifiable than implicit representation or like when stories will put in a character like the one black character or the one gay character that they'll try to make that character just like everyone else and it's not just that oh I can't see myself in this particular example of this character it's like this character isn't dealing with any of the themes that are resonant in my life. Yeah it was a really good point and it makes sense to bring it up here too that having her be more of a just normal kid allows for more identification with her you know anyone could identify with cassie right you don't have to be yeah you don't even really have to think about the fact that she's black at all while reading it and that's maybe that's a good thing i just wanted i think so right and i think it's reasonable to want more because they try and use her backstory that is very undercooked to drive some of the, her emotion at the end. She thinks about all the generations who had worked on the farm mm. in kind of an elliptical way as like a... Who were those generations? Well, right, but that's sort of part of... I don't remember if it's when she's like feeling the hatred or whatever, but she, she at the end when she thinks Visser III is going to take them all out, there's like another reference there. It's clearly supposed to serve like some kind of meaningful purpose mm-hmm. for her, and they don't really explore it in the, the depth that is warranted. And I, you know, not to say that her life should be or needs to be harder than it is, but just that it needs to feel more real. They don't even have to go into the history of it, but just like some more interaction with her parents or hearing her grandmother tell a single story would have been really interesting. Is Cassie's, or great-grandmother, she's still alive. Yeah, we could have at least, even if we didn't hear it, like we could have gotten the content of one of those stories. Maybe there was one that meant something to her or to Jake. Or... Right. And living in a family with its four generations, they still probably live in the same place. Like that's an interesting family dynamic to explore. There's just a lot of detail that they don't go into. Yeah, I think I just wanted more. And it'll be interesting to see over the course of the next few books whether her interactions with other characters allow us to learn more about her in the way that we learn more about Marco in this book when Mm -hmm. he wasn't the point of view character. I did feel like we got a lot of insight into her character. So Cassie, I, I never had like negative feelings about Cassie. I don't think she was ever particularly my favorite, but I found myself getting really annoyed with her in this book actually where she just wouldn't make a decision about this thing and she was afraid of making the decision because she didn't want it result in people getting hurt which is totally normal and understandable and I was like ugh just get over it (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny which I think reflects a little bit on in a sort of disturbing way on like what I want out of these characters like I want them to be relatable in a way where I can feel like yeah that's how I'd feel if I were in that situation but I don't want it to be quite how I would feel in that situation (laughs) because you can bet I would be really indecisive and reluctant but we kind of want to believe like oh yeah we would be fighting the aliens and we'd have some trauma and it would be tough but we'd do it and then she's like being all wishy-washy about it and I'm like ugh. so I I sort of have the same reaction to it but maybe 
coming at it from a slightly different perspective because I feel like her arc that she's she's sort of in the fight generally yeah. the stakes get raised and then she she doubles down but she doesn't want to kind of be in charge and they've mm-hmm. created this situation where she has to decide I feel like the way the plot forces the decision upon her is kind of weak because it's mm. it's this weird signal that no one understands and they make a bunch of assumptions about it that mostly bear out. Then Based they, on the information yeah, from the whale. Right. We haven't even gotten to the whale <laughs> stuff that yet. One. That's just like a lot of plot hurdles to leap over. Cassie has an easy out, which is mm. this doesn't really make a lot of sense. That's Marco's probably point. right. Let's just forget the whole thing. There might have been a better way to do the, like, I'm kind of a passive person story that didn't require so many other leaps. That's such a good Um, point, yeah. So, do we want to talk about the whale? (laughs) I will say, before we get to the whale, just while we're talking about Cassie being reluctant, it did kind of highlight for me, we had been skeptical of Jake's quote-unquote natural leadership in the last few books, but, like, actually... Comparing it to Cassie's difficulty here, how much she doesn't want to take on the responsibility, Jake just kind of did that without having any problem with it. And he's willing to let other people speak, but he is like 100% willing to make that call every time. And that, yeah, I don't think we should undervalue that. And I also think Jake's leadership in this book was really interesting because Mm -hmm. he was ensuring that she had to make the decision, right? He comes to her and says, this has to be you, which is such a great leadership moment, right? Because... He could have just been like, nope, we're doing this. But he's helping her grow by making sure she does that. And he's checking in with Tobias. And Cassie tells him to do it. But yeah. still, like he's like taking care of everything. And I was skeptical about Jake as a natural leader, <laughs> but I'm seeing it more and more. I really liked the moment where she's like, can't you decide for me? And he's like, yeah, I will if you want me to. And she's like, oh, darn it. Right. What did you think of the Cassie-Jake relationship in this book, Gray? I heart them. Aw, they're so cute. They have so many silly rom-com moments in this book. She swoons and he catches her. Oh, yeah, that's um, true. He also improbably is a teen with a picture of her doing something with a badger. I forget. <laughs> I don't know what the story is there. They share a look about Rachel and like how she's being so Rachel right now. And then she has the classic Jake, please never get hurt Aww, moment. Takes his hand in both hands. And her then eyes. they have the same thing at the end, which is the yeah. I wanted to tell you, me too, which Rachel and Tobias had in the last <laughs> yeah, book. Yeah, like that was just last book. Well, <laughs> double down. Really soon. He went to Thanksgiving with her family last year. I was really confused about the status of their relationship. I had thought it was like, oh, we kind of like each other from afar, but it felt more like. Yes, we are already dating for what that means for 13-year-olds. We don't actually touch, but, like, this is a thing. I couldn't really get a gauge on it. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, they definitely have a more, a deeper relationship than I had assumed yeah. they had. And it was also adorable. <laughs> yeah. They just really like each other. And right, they like being quiet together. Yeah, they can, they can talk about things. They don't have to talk about things. At the end, where the moment of, like, I meant to tell you. I know. It was so cute. I just can't stand it. Or that was the Me Too moment, which is like even nicer, really. So cute. It was just all, it was all adorable. I love the picture that Jake has of her where she's like looking like a mess. And and she says, I'll get you a different picture. Like, I'll let Rachel dress me up and I'll look (laughs) pretty. I'll wear a dress. I'd borrow it from Rachel. Right. Right. And and he's like, no, I like this one. It's so cute. Oh, yeah. That was wonderful. There was also another 
very cute Tobias and Rachel moment. In oh, was there? It was very short, but I wrote it down because I love Tobias and Rachel. Oh, well, yeah. Where they're trying to figure out what they're going to do about the whale being attacked. And Rachel says, you guys do what you want. I'm going in. Oh, there's a big surprise, Tobias said with weary oh, affection. that's right. I love that description. <laughs> uh, so sweet. Delightful. <laughs> I really love the way that these relationships are developed. I'm so intrigued by Cassie and Jake and like, are they dating? They like each other. I know, they like, I can't like tell. each other, but what does that mean? I feel like I'm 13 again and being like, did he say he likes you? Did he, does he are you like, like you? Right. Like, what does that mean? Right. I really enjoyed that someone could finally describe someone else as cute without being like, other people think he's cute. <laughs> yes, I, I enjoyed their relationship very much. So the whale. So the whale. <laughs> the whale. Whales are psychic. Did you guys know? Not only are they psychic and older than anything else, yeah. they know everything and yeah. they can just astrally project it mm-hmm. into people's minds. Like Andalites. Much like Andalites right. yeah. in that way. Whales probably are Andalites secretly. We don't know. I wouldn't be surprised. What if whales are just Andalites that came to Earth hundreds of thousands of years ago and got trapped in more? <laughs> <laughs> all right. If, if two whales... If, that, if, right. if they explain that later <laughs> in the books, I'll allow it. If two creatures <laughs> trapped in morph, you know, they can thought speak, of course. If they have a child, can the child thought speak? Well, obviously they can because that's what the singing is. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, obviously they can because whales can thought speak. So, yeah. right. Point proven. That's how they go. <laughs> the whole battle thing was like with the sharks. Unless that humpback whale was injured, it seems very improbable to me that sharks are attacking a full grown humpback whale. I don't know. I mean, these people do their animal research. I don't know. Fair but... enough. I just was, I was surprised by that whole scene. And then the whale, like, reaching out and giving all of this information mm-hmm. to Cassie was so weird. It was yeah. fun, cute, but weird. So this is, <laughs> it's really weird. I didn't like the whale thing. I really didn't like it. And it's because it serves two purposes, either of which would be fine. But together, I feel like it's... I like just don't like the way easy. it was it's written. Like yeah, so it's one, it's like a sci-fi premise, right? They want to do all this like sort of realistic animals the way we understand them. But let's make dolphins and whales and the sea like a little more magical and mysterious, mm, which is mystical. Like, yeah, it's interesting. Like right. Well, and Cassie even has her like mystical moment where it's like yeah. maybe it's the sea itself helping me. <laughs> Uh, which is which is fine again it's like a thing that cassie might buy into but they sort of have enough information that like the whale is kind of like thought speaking to them or feeling speaking to them cassie like mind melds with it for 10 minutes Mm -hmm. this is like really mind-blowing in terms of their understanding of animals on earth and they don't they don't deal with it at all right oh that's true so like they don't address it yeah it's really it's really weird and especially given how worried she was about like you know the souls and intellects of these animals they don't really quite go into it enough or take it as seriously as you would want it to be taken but if they wanted to have magical whales as part of the Animorphs canon, <laughs> I think that's fine. And it is kind of an, like, it's a fun take. I do enjoy the role that whales sometimes have in sci-fi. Like, there's the Star Trek movie, of course, with the whales, where mm-hmm. the whale song has been communicating with aliens this whole time. Right. I feel like it's very much in that tradition. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And they do like to borrow from Star Trek, right? <laughs> but, but sorry, go on. The other thing about the whale is that it's such a... Uh, Whale ex machina. Whale ex machina. It helps them find the Andalite ship, right? So, like, it saves them from the sharks randomly. Mm-hmm. It then gives them the information to yep. get to Axe, and then again saves them at the end. By somehow knowing that they should attack Visser 3. Right. The Animorphs just get saved three times by yeah. this, like, magical whale. It's not really justified by anything else in the plot. It kind of 
it's just like less they didn't interesting. Earn that, yeah. Yeah, and so I find the two things together make me kind of be like, eh, this is I, I'm not I'm not as into it. Although I do feel like, yes, I mean I agree with you. It's not earned, but I feel like there's a little bit of. Cassie learns in this book that, oh, it's not just the humans who are in danger from the Yerks. The whole planet is in danger, and this is, in a way, the planet rising up more directly than we've seen before. So, like, I feel like that might have been, like, the thematic thing that was supposed to tie that in. I still feel like plot-wise it is shaky, but... Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. It makes sense. Cassie does have that mystic connection to whatever on the whale, as well as saving them. So it had the consciousness of itself and also other species in a way that seemed, Ted, like you were saying, more like what Cassie should have been worried about than the dolphins in some ways, right? She talks all about how the dolphins are so intelligent. And then she meets this whale and is completely blown away by its wisdom and insight. So I think that that plays into some of her concerns, which she then immediately forgets, and that's fine. (laughs) That's true. Um, Is it fine? Well, it's not as important to the plot, so I get why that drops out a little bit. But also... I keep coming back to this idea that the animals know something's wrong. Mm. This is several times we've seen this where they can smell the yerks or they know oh. that it's not the real owner, but they I really like that. Up. And this is another one where they, you know, when, when she talks for the first time, we're not really dolphins. The whale's like, yeah, no, I know. You're something right? new. You're something new and knows that these aliens aren't meant to be there and, and attacks Visser 3 and all of this. And I can't help but think that this is somewhat a missed opportunity because Mm. if the earth is kind of rising up to fight against this invasion, I feel the animorphs should be taking advantage of that Mm. in a way that they're not. Mm -hmm. Or not yet. Or not yet. Maybe they will. But, you know, dump a bunch of taxons in the ocean and let one (laughs) dolphin hit each one and (laughs) all the taxons will be gone, right? I mean, there's, there's a sense that they're not taking advantage of the insights that are available to them because they have this power to morph and then to connect with other animals. And if, in fact, the animals do have this sense that something's wrong, the fact that the animorphs are operating independently, stealing the animal DNA, using the animal forms, but not actually involving the animals is sort of like a human supremacy thing. Like, you know, this is all of our fight, but we'll fight it for you. But, I've never thought of it this way. This is no, amazing. but that's explicit in the text, yeah. too. I wrote this down because it, it was kind of uh, startling. At the very end, we'd used the dolphins to save them. We'd used other animals to save them, too. And that made it okay. Oh, right? I so, that. yeah. So, yeah. I, think, I think the reason Cassie is my favorite animorph is because she's mm-hmm. the moral philosopher of the group. Yeah. And I love the way that that theme is explored in here. And I think you sort of brought it up, so we should get into it a little more. So she's worried dolphins are too intelligent. Mm-hmm. They're kind of, well, we, we have to do it. We have to do it. She finds out. She's got the instincts. And I guess there's a little bit more of this extra species knowledge that they have. And she has this ability to communicate with the whale and stuff. But she's not worried about mm-hmm. an individual dolphin. But despite her concerns here, she's like still asking the dolphin's permission, even mm-hmm. though the dolphin can't hear her, right? She yeah. says, like, may I, as she does it. And then at the end, she's like, I need to at least try to communicate, right? So you were saying... Let them know, yeah. Yeah, they're not really involving the animals. And Cassie's, it sort of comes to this, well, it's okay, we're human supremacy, we'll, we'll save the world for them. But mm-hmm. despite that, she still goes out of her way to, to try, which I really like about her. Yeah, she's very thoughtful about it. 
which I appreciate it because it also means that she asks good questions about how the morphing works. So she is the first one to take advantage of this whole DNA thing with Marco. Right, right? she has the remorph idea. Yeah, so you turn into oh, a human, yes. turn back, yes. you'll be fixed because it's based on DNA. Eye roll. But it, <laughs> it's it, confusing. She has this kind of greater understanding of the morphing part, maybe mm-hmm. not the Andalites and kind of the fight itself. Like I feel Tobias has more of that from this dump that he got. But I think her ability to be really good at morphing is in part because she has these thoughts of the animal and how the animal is reacting to these things. And I, I like that about her. I think that's a really great aspect of her personality we didn't talk about. Yeah, and I will say, I was a little annoyed with Cassie in this book. I don't remember having been annoyed with her in any other book, so I'm hoping I won't be, because I do really enjoy the moral philosophy. It raised a lot of questions for me about the logistics of morphing, which we've gotten into in past books and, like, still not really answered everything. Like, if, like, mostly the human mind is there, like, somehow the human mind is there and the animal instincts, but not the full animal mind. Mm -hmm. So, like, how do you have just the instincts without the entire mind? Like, that has felt less relevant with creatures that were less intelligent than dolphins. Mm-hmm. Once you have something like a creature as intelligent as a dolphin, is it that not all of the mind is there? Right. Not and all the mind is active. Some right. of it is like preempted and by the human. I love the way that this, because they talk about it a little bit, and this is, I think, the same as when Rachel and Tobias are talking about whether it's okay to kill to eat, and mm. it's kind of left unresolved. So when they're talking about how is this different from what the Yurks do, mm-hmm. um, right? Cassie feels a twisting in her stomach, and Rachel's like, well, Yurks take over humans. They don't morph, they infest. We don't take over the actual animal. We just copy the DNA and make a new animal. And then and then Cassie's like, but then we control the new animal. Yeah. Uh, and Rachel's like, it's not the same, but she looked troubled. Yeah. And Cassie says, it's something I'll have to think about. It's kind of been bothering me. Mm-hmm. And then the it moves on, right? Yeah. yeah, which I, I love the way that's handled. Again, Rachel actually plays the same role as she develops the strong opinion that validates mm-hmm. what they're doing. Um, mm-hmm. and is maybe a little bit aware that it's deeper than yeah. that, but she just wants <laughs> to tie it up and move so on. that she can take action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Much as I was a little bit annoyed by Cassie's indecision, I liked how thoughtful she was about maybe it is just that I'm hesitant to take responsibility. It's the sort of like, am I just trying to keep my hands clean? Mm-hmm. Is it that this is really a wrong decision, or am I just being like squeamish, or am I being a coward and not wanting to make this call? And it is about her relationships with the others, right? It's mm-hmm. not just that she doesn't want to make the call for herself. It's she's worried. That oh, yeah, it's all get, about that, yeah. Can get injured. Before we uh, close, I would like to talk about the differences between the two editions. Mm, and I would yes. also like to read my favorite Marco line from this book. <laughs> Excellent. Please. Tobias asks, have our legs gotten really weird or is it just me? Marco. Weird, weird, Marco crowed. The talking bird wants to know if getting information on the location of an alien from a whale that you've just saved from sharks by turning into dolphins, you're suggesting that's weird? And I laughed a lot. (laughs) I laugh every time at the line that's, thanks to the information from the whale. Yeah. (laughs) It's so good. I like when they highlight the absurdity of the situation. mm -hmm. My favorite line, and this is a very 90s line, is, we were looking at some dolphin information on the internet (laughs) when they get to the dolphin enclosure. So shall we, speaking of the internet, Yeah, let's talk about the 90s. that have happened between the 90s and the 2000s. So we have the original edition and then the updated edition from just a few years ago. And there are a few changes between the two. For example, Marco's dreams, as we discussed earlier, 
uh, no longer about Baywatch, but instead the woman who lifeguards at the beach. Which um, is creepier. Which is definitely <laughs> creepier. And also he, in the original, has weird dreams about falling from way up high. When I finally land, I'm in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood talking to King Friday. And then Mr. Rogers comes back later. He says, he's shouldn't we go home and watch Mr. Rogers? Right. But in the new edition, he falls from way up high and lands in Sesame Street talking to Elmo. And then later it's Sesame Street that they're uh, watching. It was a sunshiny day, not how, a beautiful you know, How could they there. strip Mr. Rogers from this book? Yeah, oh, I I'm think so offended. Elmo is easier to make fun of him for than King uh. Friday. But I am also a little a little sad about that. I'm just a little sad. They are still looking up dolphin information on the internet. <laughs> yeah, that's oh, great. Yeah, it's not that. Wikipedia in this one. It's no, because they aren't putting in things that didn't exist in the 90s. Right. They're just making them vaguer. It's just a teenager wouldn't say that. We've been <laughs> looking up dolphin information uh-huh. on, on the internet. The internet. Uh, was there anything else that was a was a good 90s reference that I should look up in the new one? No, I was wondering about... Oh, the... Psychic Friends. Oh, Psychic Friends, yeah. Uh, so instead of being Psychic Friends, Marco suggests maybe we could try calling a Psychic Hotline. Hi, is this Madame Zora? I've been dreaming about <laughs> aliens lately. Is Madame Zora a real psychic name? I am unfamiliar yeah, with Yeah, I think it was the thing where you called and it's like $10 a minute to ask her about. Yeah, that, she's life? the Less premier online psychic and psychic fortune teller. No, it's Well, okay. a psychic hotline explains what it yes. is, right? So. But like, honestly, I've never heard of psychic friends this when I read so, this and I assumed it was a psychic hotline. Like, I really, I think the effort to update the books is really funny to yeah. me. Yeah, I think they're not giving kids enough credit for just like zipping over things exactly. they don't sure. understand. Exactly, exactly. Like, I didn't understand most of these references at that age, and it didn't keep me from enjoying the books. Interesting. Um, So, yeah, I thought this book was really interesting in that they morph a lot. mm. There are, like, four new morphs in this book. Whoa, Um, really? Right, so she starts with the squirrel. Squirrel. Well, they do the trout, which isn't new, but it's new to have the experience of one of the characters who is a trout. see it from the inside. And then the dolphins, mm-hmm. and then the seagulls. seagulls, and then when the seagulls, the seagulls come are in, so fun. I love it because I think this is the first time when there isn't really any build up to the morph. They're just like, okay, we need seagulls, and then cut. They're in the seagull morphs. It's That's really true. silly, really but they, you don't need to kind of like dwell on the first experience of being a seagull and getting distracted. Mm-hmm. So like a little bit of comic relief. They blend in, and then they move on. Wait, going back to the '90s stuff. Does Marco still have? a cassette tape, like a video cassette of the news. Thank you very much for reminding <laughs> me because that was something that I'm very happy to read out to you. It is different and oh. it's very funny. So in the in the original, Jake pulls out a video cassette. Marco says, let's watch a movie. Not a movie. I guess no one else watched the late news last night. And Marco says, I was busy watching my taped reruns of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. <laughs> last night it was the one where it was a beautiful day in the neighborhood. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> so they're going to go downstairs and use the VCR. In the new one, Jake pulls a video cassette out of his bag, and Marco replies, cool, a piece of prehistoric technology. What? Not everybody has DVR, Jake said. I guess no one else watched the late news last night. I was busy watching reruns of Sesame Street, Marco said. Last night it was the one where it was a sunny day sleeping the clouds away. That is not as funny. Jake says, can we go downstairs and use your mom's old VCR? Okay, I have new questions about this because I felt like in other changes they've removed dated references and made stuff a little vaguer or like replaced stuff that also existed in the 90s. Like I'm sure when they replaced B. Dalton with Barnes & Noble, Barnes & Noble was a thing in the 90s. 
But DVR was not a thing in 1996. So are they trying to change the year that this takes place now? Yeah, I think so. And if they are, why don't they have cell phones? Why don't they go on the internet for more things? Like, Mm -hmm. that is going to break some realism. It's very silly. I mean, it's just, it's such a lot to update. I mean, the other ones have been a reference here. Yeah, like a single store name or a single... Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is like a full several paragraphs where we're talking about a different television show they're making fun of this old technology i mean it's a really interesting change and if they want to reference dvr why did they still have jake record the show on a vhs why couldn't he just record it on the dvr right not everyone has dvr (laughs) oh right okay Yes, very weird change. Oh, I object to that. That's worse than the other changes, I think. Mm-hmm. Definitely more substantial, at the very least. But sorry, Ted, you were still talking about the animals. Did you want to have... No, well, only one more thing about animals, which is about taxons, which are the worst animals. They are the worst <laughs> animals. Um, they still manage to be gross, no matter what environment they fight them in. <laughs> um, actually, the first thing I thought was interesting is Cassie speculates about the seas that the taxons evolved in. which jumped out to me as like, I would love to kind of figure out what kind of environment would create a creature like a taxon. Maybe we'll learn about that later. Something with no predators, I guess, because they're so vulnerable. Right, so then this is is what happens when Cassie is fighting a taxon underwater. I expected it to be like the shark, hard, tough, unyielding. It was not. It was like hitting a soggy paper bag with a sledgehammer. The taxon burst like a dropped watermelon. I wanted to throw up. I beat the water with my tail and recoiled from the horrible scene I had created. It's I just the worst. Love that. <laughs> so gross. <laughs> it was so gross. And the the morph that Mister Three does is also super gross. A giant sack fish covered in fish tails. <laughs> it reminded me of sunfish, which don't have that many fins, but mm. are also like just kind of really big blobs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the the taxon scene was real icky. Also, they in I think in part because, as we discussed, these are you know one could pick up book four first. In fact, one did exactly. <laughs> They're having less and less of the backstory in, in each of the books mm-hmm. as we go mm-hmm. along, but they do describe the aliens in each one. And so this time uh, they were ten foot long centipedes bristling with dozens of pairs of sharp needle legs. They're very fast in the water. Uh. Nope, still gross. I will say, yeah, I don't remember very specifically my experience of reading this book for the first time, but I wasn't confused. Like, they do a really good job of keeping you... Yeah, that's great. Keeping you informed, letting you follow what's going on without dumping tons of Mm -hmm. history on you. Are there other things that we want to talk about before we do the next book? Cassie has this line about Tobias where she says, And Tobias is never happy, period. He thinks if he's ever happy, someone will just come along and take his happiness away. Which I thought was really interesting. Like, I do actually know people sort of like that. It wasn't how I would have thought to describe Tobias. Mm. And I was wondering, like, is it true of Tobias in some way? Is it Cassie, like, is she being accurate in her... I don't know. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, in The Encounter, he is sort of pretending to be happy as a hawk when he's not which is kind of a different, a very different Yeah, and then he does seem like he's finding some happiness at the end. Or more balance. Yeah. Right? I think he's a very tormented individual. Yeah. And that, I don't know how, how accurate her insight is, but I do see Tobias as a person who has not had a lot of happiness in his life and doesn't know how to deal with the brief moments of happiness he has. Because, mm. you know, even when he's happy as a hawk, he's very uncomfortable about that happiness. 
mm-hmm. and we don't see any happy moments of him as a human. Yeah, no. Um, and maybe, maybe he can feel happy, but he maybe he's not good at expressing it. That right? so it's true. not like when yeah. he's flying around, he's like, "Oh, it's still so awesome being a bird, you guys! Like this is great. <laughs> I don't mind at all." Maybe he's feeling that I don't sometimes. Think I believe that. But, right. I did feel like thinking about it now, like that description actually feels like it would fit better for Marco. Hmm. Like Marco, mm-hmm. yeah. definitely like has fun and jokes around, but he definitely seems like someone who would be paranoid if he were happy because he'd be afraid to be taken away. Mm-hmm. Should uh, we talk about the predator? Okay, so the predator. And while you're thinking about this, I do want to give you credit. You completely nailed the plot of this book. Yes. Did, did you realize that? Okay, as it you wasn't were Alcatraz it? or Azkaban, okay. but it was so close. And it, the message was not in a bottle; it was in a dream. And a whale. <laughs> and a whale. Very importantly, the whale did tell the them whale shaped bottle. But anyway, so now just no pressure or anything to get them all right. Shoot, but I got two in a row. Yeah, I'm very much in trouble with this. That's one. true, though. You might have like superpowers. Did you meet an alien at a construction site who gave you the ability to predict these books? That would be the worst superpower. To get. <laughs> You're like, I'm better than Wikipedia, or at least more supernatural. I guess. Once again, these are very terrifying covers. I am not at all surprised that I didn't read these books. This one in particular, poor Marco. Like, first of all, he is wearing mom jeans. <laughs> not a good look. The 90s were bad for everybody, but geez. And the middle picture looks so much like Planet of the Apes. Oh, no. And I, like, can't deal with it. Okay, so the Predator, the uh, little cut text on the front is, what you see isn't always what you get. I do not typically think of gorillas as being predators. Well, they're not, are they? I would imagine they're omnivores, but I don't actually know. So I'm going to guess that they have an encounter with a with another predator. And do they have an encounter with a predator who's a visitor and gives them a message? Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what happens. Sorry, go I on with your it. prediction. Um, all right. What happens is there is a predator of some sort attacking things, like maybe at Cassie's farm. Mm. And they have to go and figure out what this new predator is. And in order to solve the problem, Marco has to go back into his gorilla morph that he got in the first book and protect the others from mm. the new predator. So it's like a okay. real animal problem, not an alien problem? Or uh, maybe the aliens maybe are the causing aliens. it somehow? Maybe okay, the interesting. Are the and that means like Axe would be in danger. He's right, because he's farm. staying in the farm. He's in the woods now. He's got to have a gorilla friend to help. Mm-hmm. I right. like it. Well, let's see if that <laughs> happens next time on The Predator. Next time on Animorphology, The Predator. <laughs> Should I say that again so that it's... No, no, that was good. I just didn't want it to be next time on The Predator. That's not what we're doing here. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> if you want to find us, we are at Animorphology.com and at Animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the Animorphs ebooks on our website. Also, on the new cover, Marco looks just like the kid who plays Jacob in Twilight. Yeah, I can kind of see it. Liam Hemsworth, is that his name? No.